January 16th, 2014. This is the Hermetic Hour, and I'm your host, Pope Runyon. Now, tonight, we present a discussion on the ancient Phoenicians and the Hermetic tradition. Now, this follows last week's review of Jesus the Phoenician by Karim El Kusa, and the references for this evening's discussion will be the recent book Phoenician Secrets by Sanford Holst and uh, The Phoenicians, The Purple Empire of the Ancient World by Gerald Herm. Our focus will be on Phoenician contributions to and influence on Western occultism and magic. Now, it has recently been established that the Phoenician culture is one of the oldest in the world, and its roots go back 9,000 years. The Phoenicians were building and sailing ocean-going ships long before the pyramids of Egypt were built. And the first pyramid was built by European architects brought from Malta to Egypt by Phoenician contractors. The Phoenicians were very secretive about their business and their religion. We will discuss their astrological religion, the labors of Hercules, their magical alphabet, the real origin of the Kabbalah, and their possible connection with Atlantis. So, if you want to voyage with the purple people on ancient seas, tune in and we'll hoist the mainmast. Now, you know, I'm going to make a little correction on that. I, 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 I think maybe the Phoenicians kept the yard arm attached up there at the top of the main, which means that they probably dropped the sail instead of hoisting it. <laughs> but either way. Um, now, the first thing we need to uh, explain is this. I mentioned uh, Stanford, uh, Stanford Holst's very excellent book, uh, The Phoenician Secrets. That just came out, by the way. Uh, that's 2011. And then The Phoenicians, The Purple Empire of the Ancient World by Gerald Herm. He's a German author. And that, that appeared here in, the, in America in 1975. Um, now, I want to make, make it clear. Both these books are excellent, by the way. And uh, what I, I want to make clear before we start that I am not, Scrupulously, this is uh, this is not. I'm not being a scholar now. I, I'm not scrupulously following just their information. I'm extrapolating from it, and uh, I, I'm both of these very good scholars would not, in a million years, ever use the A word. They wouldn't, and don't think because I'm using the A word that they would use the A word. Uh, they might secretly want to, but <laughs> but being good scholars, they won't. Uh, but uh, we're going to use the A word. Now, Woody of the Phoenicians. And this is, uh, by the way, for those of you who don't know what a Phoenician is, uh, Phoenician, the word Phoenician is Greek, and it comes from basically uh, purple people, and it means uh, that this little fish called the Muriax, little as a little shellfish, um, it produces a, a beautiful, beautiful, rich purple dye, but it doesn't produce very much of it. So um, the Phoenicians uh, produced this purple dye, and, uh, and 
and they were the only ones who had it, and they were the only ones uh, who could use it, and they they dyed beautiful purple cloth, and of course they traded that, and it was so valuable that that uh, it became the symbol of royalty, and uh, only the kings and the and the highest nobles could afford this purple cloth that the Phoenicians were making. So uh, the Phoenicians from this uh, this uh, resource they had, they became known as the Purple People, or uh, or the or the Royal Phoenicians, as it were. Uh, now, it has been thought that the Phoenicians were kind of yeah, late comers to ancient history, and and they the Phoenicians have been been really kind of given a um, a uh, a downgrading in the cultural civilization department to where they came up late and supposedly the Egyptians they they, they copied their ships from the Egyptians and uh, the, the Egyptians went up there first and brought the cedars of Lebanon down to Egypt uh, back in, in uh, Second Kingdom and, and the Phoenicians got all their ideas from that and then they started doing it all of this was not true more recent, uh, more recent archaeology and uh, historical research has has established that the Phoenicians were not a bunch of, of desert nomads down the Sinai who who just uh, happened to wander up there and 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 around you know a little bit before the time of uh, Solomon a little bit uh, around the time of Moses they just kind of wandered up there and then they started the of this uh, business and, and uh, shipping. And no, no, this isn't true. Uh, the, the Phoenician culture has been there in one form or another. It has been there in in Lebanon and in northern northern Palestine, Lebanon and Syria. It's been there for nine thousand years. And the Baalbek, and I'm sure you've all heard about the huge. The huge stones in Baalbek, and uh, this is yeah, this is a very, very, very ancient uh, Phoenician city. Um, so we have to take another look at the Phoenicians. We have to. We it's time that we did take another look at them because it turns out that the Egyptians, the Phoenicians, were the ones who brought the cedars down to Egypt and brought the architects over from Malta, European architects over from Malta, to build the first pyramid for Dozer's first pyramid, that step pyramid, way, way down the old kingdom. Yeah, that was that was over 3000 B.C. Yeah. And, and, and the Phoenicians were the ones who literally civilized the Egyptians. The Egyptians before this time were living in one-story brick Buildings, one-story brick huts, and 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 uh, they, they, their tombs were what they called mastabas. They were just low, uh, uh, low brick structures along the ground. They, they, without the Phoenicians, there would have been no Egyptian architecture, or it would have been a lot later. And these these great uh, Egyptian architectural accomplishments, including all the pyramids, really have their origin. In, uh, in both in Phoenicians bringing down the timber, and now these are ocean-going ships. Now we're talking about ocean-going ships, 3000 BC. 
the first ocean-going ships in a long, long time uh, in the Mediterranean, and were built by the Phoenicians. And Danny, so what are we looking at here? We're looking at people who are highly, they're so far beyond everybody else technologically that, uh, that we, have to, we have to wonder, what, 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 where is this coming from? Now, um, we know that, that the Phoenicians were indigenous to this, uh, this land and this area and, and the coast. Now, the Phoenician historian Sancho Neathan uh, says that Kusor, and that's the craftsman god of the Phoenicians uh, and the Canaanites, and he's also analogous to Tubal-Cain in the Bible. Uh, so according to, to Sancho Neathan, uh, Kusor invented the fishing boat way, way back in the beginning of before history. He invented the fishing boat. All right? Now, I want to make a little point here. And I think this will be helpful to some people who are trying to, uh, especially if you're a victim of Marxist archaeology. And uh, Marxist archaeology uh, has to has to prove that everything evolves from the simple to the complex. There's no such thing as cycles in Marxist archaeology. So consequently, uh, we all we have to have a sequence that goes from hunter gatherers to to uh, crude agriculture, and then it has to go up from there, and, and then from after we get agriculture, then we start having uh, we start having irrigation, and then we next thing you know we 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 have a little village, and then and it just keeps going up, and finally reaches writing and all that. That's that's Marxist archaeology, but that's not what's going on here. And there's one thing about this: even if you don't have agriculture. This is one thing the anthropologists don't want to tell you, especially if they're Marxists. <laughs> if, you don't, if you don't have agriculture, if you do have all you need for civilization, now all you need for a civilization to develop is a fixed, steady food supply at one point. If you've got that, then you can have civilization. You don't need agriculture. Consequently, uh, the Ice Age maritime civilization, and believe in me, it was maritime. That Ice Age civilization, when the, the sea level was 200 feet lower, huge salmon run. And it because some of it's still there. You know, you go, you go up to Scotland to fish for salmon, hey, oh, that was the salmon run. Now, so both the Magdalenian Cro-Magnon culture, and salmon was one of their staples, and of course the Atlantean people right off the southern coast of, of England and, and off the coast of Spain and France, that salmon was their, their main one. Now, I'm not sure what the fish was that, that, that got the Phoenicians going, but there certainly was. Their cities are all, all right along the coast. And remember now, Cousor uh, invented the fishing boat. So that's how it got started, and that's how you can have civilization even before you have agriculture. Now, um, one of the things I want to point out also, too, is that we are becoming aware more and more and more, and the archaeologists or the professional archaeologists, you know, the university archaeologists are being very quiet about it. We're becoming very, very aware of the steadily advancing antiquity of the ancient of civilization itself. Now, as most of you probably know, 
up in Anatolia, right north of, of um, Syria and right north of Lebanon, uh, in Anatolia, we've now found a city, that stone city, I mean, and, and magnificent carvings and monuments and all that, 11,000 years ago, all right? Now, a few years back, that would have been considered impossible. Now, as I said, and this, by the way, um, comes from Sanford Hulse's book, the Phoenicians brought architects and stonemasons from Malta and, or perhaps further west, uh, to Egypt to build the first pyramid. In other words, uh, uh, we have a, we have a uh, uh, an Imhotep. Uh, I think Imhotep may very well may very well have been been a Maltese, and that means he would he was a European. Um, by the way, this idea has been around a while. It's getting more and more credibility. If you remember that movie. Um, uh, I think it was called Land of the Pyramids with Joan Collins and 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 and, uh, and Hawkins, and they had this. They had a European architect uh, in in there building the Great Pyramid. But uh, so we say a European architect. What exactly are we talking about? Now, as you also may be aware, that there is this what I would call this Atlantean culture. Uh, Hatcher Childress calls it the Osirian culture. Uh, that's pre-Egyptian. Um, that uh, stonework, this monolithic stonework, what they call Cyclopean architecture, or maybe it's Cyclopean architecture. I don't know. Uh, is it Cyclopean or Cyclopean? Uh, I think it's probably Cyclopean because you... You, you, you don't have a cyclops, you have a cyclops. But anyway, this, this this architecture is the architecture of the huge stones, the stones that are so big you can't figure out how anybody raised them, and they're piled and you know and, and fitted and stacked in these these uh, absolute. They look like they're they're made by giants, and this architecture is well, it's it's. 10,000 years old. I mean, it, and it, it, you find it in the chamber tombs uh, going down to the coast in Spain and in France. You find it, you find it in the huge earthworks uh, in the southern England. You find it, uh, well, I get into, I get into uh, uh, Tartessos and, and uh, one of the, some of the Spanish, some of the Spanish cities in a little bit, but, but, there is this culture, this this European culture that moves it moves eastward, it moves eastward through the Mediterranean, and you get Malta, this little island of Malta, and it has a a temple complex, part, partially underground and, and above ground. You have this temple complex that is called the Hypogeum, by the way, and this this is one of the oldest. The oldest uh, buildings and, and and temple complex in the world, and the stones are huge, and, and this is real Cyclopean architecture. Now, um, so according to what uh, Sanford Holst is is suggesting, the Phoenicians, by the way, and they remember now these are supposedly a Semitic people, uh, a Canaanite people, and they had a very close relationship with the Maltese. Now, we 
this get this this relationship that the Phoenicians had with the Europeans, that's the Maltese and the Minoans, is very very close, and they work together, and and uh, and we don't know quite how much how much the Maltese influenced the Phoenicians and how much the Phoenicians influenced the Maltese. But uh, what what Sanford Holst is saying is that they they with all this trade back and forth with Egypt. Now, by the way, Egypt was their best customer. They, they, Egypt, you know, everyone, everyone, once they got Egypt started building stuff, then the, the Egyptians, the only place they could get cedar was from uh, the coast of Lebanon. You know, and, and the, the mountains up in Lebanon were covered with beautiful big cedar trees. And the Egyptians had virtually no wood at all. So if they wanted to, if they wanted to really build, they, they had to bring lumber down from uh, from from the Lebanon, and the Phoenicians, of course, could supply it. They supply the trade. But the Phoenicians then began to roam all over the Mediterranean, and they uh, very quickly got a hold of the Maltese, and they really had a good relationship with them. So uh, they brought these Maltese architects, the kind of people who built the hypogeum, to, to Egypt to help the Egyptians with their pyramid process. The Egyptians really did need help with pyramids. They really did. They 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 did. They built one after that. They built one after that called the Bed Pyramid. If you look at the Bed Pyramid, and you can see how much help they needed. And uh, so, anyway, the the uh, basic thing here is that the Phoenicians and the Maltese were both very, very, very old cultures, and they were. And the Phoenicians were not only boat builders, shipbuilders. And sailors, they were also marvelous architects and stonemasons. Remember that now. They could carve. These people could carve. They could transport. They could set. They could they could build with stones that were today would give contractors the willies to try to figure out how to how to even shape them and and use them. That one picture, one of those Ruthenians at Belbeck, It doesn't look like. People standing on top of a boxcar, it looks like people standing on top of an overturned 14-story building, and that this is perfectly, perfectly rectangular and, and, and chiseled down to a fine, oh, and, and how do you do this? Well, it probably isn't a landing, it probably isn't a landing pad for spaceships, but, but it, it is absolutely amazing. Now this, but this was Phoenician skill and Phoenician technology. Um, now, what they started to do after they established their Egyptian trade, and their Egyptians all for thousands of years, the Egyptians made and remained their major customers. They started to develop trade all over the Mediterranean, and they, they, their method was that they would establish bases. And these were, they're not exactly colonies. They, they, they started the colony uh, business a, a thousand years or so later, but they, they first started establishing trading bases. And these were kind of almost secret, uh, secret trading bases where they, they had uh, little coves that they'd find and then they would establish a base. So then they could, they could distribute and they could, uh, they could uh, you know, harbor their ships and take on water and provisions and all, all the various things you do 
when you have an, have a um, you know a maritime base. So they had these little bases all over the Mediterranean, and they kept them secret. Um, the, the, the Phoenicians, the Phoenicians were a, and this was something else about them that that uh, really bears on a lot of factors, especially on the Hermetic and the, Mas- the Masonic factors and all that. They were very, very secretive. And they were very secretive, and they were very tight-knit, and they kept their secrets, and, and they kept their secrets even to the point where a Phoenician skipper would 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 sink his ship before he would, he would let somebody follow him uh, find one of their bases. They and, and of course he, he knew if he did that uh, that his uh, the company that he worked for you know because they were a, they were a big corporation that they would reimburse him you know well I had to do this you know, such, such, such. so what we have here is a very very sophisticated modern almost and this is back three thousand you know BC we have a very very modern concept here of what is literally a corporation. And and these coastal cities in the, in Lebanon, you know, that says Biblos, and then down, and then the Sidon, and then Tyre, and uh, much later Beirut. But but uh, um, these these cities were like well, Tyre was out on an island, and Biblos was right down down at a point of land. They they would they would uh, try to get these cities as as isolated and protected as possible. And wall and 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 uh, the idea here was to have the city was completely controlled by what we would what we might refer to as the corporation. Now there wasn't. Uh, this is kind of in a way, and I just discuss their political system here a little bit because this has a bearing on a lot of things. It has a bearing, I think, on Plato, and it also has a bearing on Jesus. <laughs> Uh, their their political system was uh, kind of a like what you might call corporate socialism. Uh, I know that sounds like fascism, but but uh, and they weren't militaristic. And, and in fact, the Phoenicians would do anything to avoid fighting. Uh, but what they would do is with a city and their ships, they they private they, they, there was no such thing as private property, obviously, because they're so tight knit that everybody has to live. Uh, in the corporate compound, it's like if let's say you you let's say you you go in, you, you overseas and you and you go to some place in the, uh, say in the Middle East where where they don't like to have uh, uh, where you're liable to get you know, get accosted if if your lady goes out wearing shorts or something like that. Uh, so you all live in in the American compound. Well, obviously you don't own you can't own your house. So you, you have to rent it from the corporation. That's the way it was in Tyre and Sidon and, and with the rest of the Phoenicians. They, they, uh, they uh, the city owned the property and then they rented it, you know, to people, and and they took care of all of their, you know, their people who needed taken care of. They didn't. Uh, they, you know, it wasn't a welfare state though. Everybody pulled their weight, and they were had a they had a tremendous work ethic. So, um, so they had a, a what you what you say is a form of socialism, but it was very capitalistic because these these guys were entrepreneurs. I mean, and the king they elected their king. King was the, was the chairman of the board. 
and and they they would get the wealthier the wealthier families uh, they would put money up for a voyage and 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 uh, they were doing this just about the same way that 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 uh, Lloyd's of London would operate in the in the nineteenth century and and this was back five thousand years ago and and out of that. It comes Plato's Republic, and out of that comes uh, comes Jesus's uh, particular what 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 looks like extreme socialism with Jesus, and probably wasn't. He was probably being seeing how these kind of ideas probably probably echoing the high the the Hylican days of of the Phoenicians, and very peaceful very peaceful people, but they were aggressive traders. They were very aggressive traders. Very very. And and corporate socialism. I know that probably sounds good to uh, those who. And also globalization too. Let's let's look at that because we're globalization is a big thing now. Well, and multiculturalism. The Phoenicians, their own religion and their own philosophy, they kept very very secret. But they they were chameleons when it came to. Other cultures, they would, oh, and they went to Egypt, they would dress like the Egyptians, and they would try to speak Egyptian, and they would they would just, uh, and then they would tell the Egyptians, oh, well, we have, well, we worship Osiris, too, you know, and all that. So they would, they would have temples to the Egyptian gods to make the Egyptians happy. And uh, the same thing uh, all, over the, all over the Mediterranean. And so they became, in outwardly, outwardly, they looked like a mixture of all kinds of cultures, a mixture of of, uh, of the Egyptian and the Minoan and all these things. They so you, it looked like Phoenician artwork and and all, and you can't you can't really determine the style. But their own religion and their own um, their own philosophy, and especially their astrology and their astronomy and their and their um, navigation and, and all of this, this was very, very private. And their alphabet was also one of their secret weapons, and that was private up till it finally leaked out about 1500 B.C., the alphabet finally got out. Now, um, the uh, Phoenician religion, and this is something that, that is also very important for, for us to understand, especially uh, last week we did uh, uh, Karim al Jesus, the, the Phoenician. And he's not the only one, by the way, who has, who has noticed this. Um, Jesus had to be, he had to be uh, of Canaanite Phoenician extraction because of this whole idea of, of resurrection. This, this, the idea of the resurrected, of the dying and resurrected God, this is, this is Phoenician. And it's also Egyptian too. It it, uh, uh, it it replicates Osiris, but it primarily replicates Baal and and uh, and and Mot. What happens uh, uh, at the summer solstice when Baal gets when Baal gets killed, and then uh, uh, then Astarte has to come down from heaven and resurrect him. You know. Oh, the Virgin Mary is resurrecting her son, or whatever. But, but this was one. Of, this was the old, one of the old, the oldest, of, the oldest of the Phoenician rituals, and uh, this 
the dying and resurrected God and the eternal goddess was very, very, very important to them. And now this brings up a dark side. And this is a dark side that neither that neither um, Holst or, or Herm want to deal with. But the Phoenicians did indulge in in human sacrifice. And so when the Carthaginians, which is their later colony, they they supposedly really did, you know, and whatever. But that, uh, well, the Jews did some some human sacrifice too, but but they didn't, you know, they, by by uh, by about 500 BC, the 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 Jews had decided it was a terrible thing and they stopped it. But uh, but the Phoenicians um, weren't quite so upset about it, and the reason is that they firmly firmly believed in reincarnation, and the Jews did not. And the Phoenicians firmly, so firmly believe in reincarnation that that sacrificing, even sacrificing your own child, if if this was deemed serious enough and necessary, to them was 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 it was it was awful and it was mournful and all that. But they didn't see that the, to them they weren't killing a soul. They were they were sending them on to to hopefully better things or whatever. Now uh, I know I don't agree with that, and uh, and I'm sure we don't either. But but then on the other hand, that's what that that was where it came from from this tremendous uh, assurance of reincarnation. Now the same thing with the Druids, by the way, the European uh, strength. The Druids were the same way. They 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 believe in reincarnation so strongly that they would even settle deaths in the next life. Uh, so and of course, as we know, uh, in India, uh, up until recently, and I don't know, they may still do it. Uh, the the wife throws herself on the husband's funeral pyre so she can go with him. Um, and this is you know, this is this is the what you might call the dark side of, of the reincarnation thing. However. Remember uh, that out of this, out of this, the darkest it might be, out of this comes uh, the religion of Christianity, and so, uh, so we have to say that. Uh, I, well, uh, I'm not trying to say that the Christianity practices human sacrifice, but it certainly celebrates it. And um, now, that that. Uh, is the as I say the the dark side of this thing. Now, as I said, Jesus's resurrection is essentially Osirian. In other words, by that he I mean he he he's sacrificed and he goes up to heaven and there he judges the the quick and the dead. But uh, whereas the Phoenician cycle, the God is killed every year and resurrected by the goddess and, and is reborn uh, in, in uh, modern in modern uh, cycle, reborn in the winter, in the old cycle, reborn in the spring. Now, um, you might say that, uh, that, that therefore Jesus, the, the, the whole idea of Jesus uh, comes from the Egyptian, but Egyptian religion and, and it was so... Uh, familiar to the Phoenicians, and they were so uh, they were so um, uh, eclectic in this that uh, it 
that, that Jesus' influence is primarily from the Phoenician rather than the Egyptian. Now, um, I want to point out here that this Phoenician religion did not die until 300 A.D. They were still, in 300 A.D., they were still celebrating the death of the, of the, year, the year king up there at Afaka in, in the Lebanon where this where the spring uh, runs out of the out of the cave and down into the gorge, and the water hits the uh, hematite layer in the river Ibram and it runs red, and that's what Jesse Weston, you know, the anthropologist back in 1927, the origin of the Holy Grail. Well, you go along with that. So this kept up all the way up to 300 A.D. and then finally Saint Chrysostom. Uh, the uh, one of the Christian fathers gathered a, a gang of of, uh, of uh, uh, hooligans and sent them uh, to, uh, to slaughter the, the court worshippers of uh, Adonis and, and and the goddess up there at, the, at Afaka, and that was the end of the those Phoenician seasonal ceremonies until. Well, 1974, and we started them up again. Now, uh, I wanted to look at some of the um, some of the Masonic aspects of uh, of this Phoenician phenomenon. Uh, the Phoenicians were the oldest, best, and most highly organized international fraternity of architects and builders on the planet, and they kept it going for the longest time thousands and thousands of years that they kept this going. And they kept their secrets and they were loyal to their to their uh to their company and they were the master masons and they were and the master architects, the master shipbuilders and the master sailors. And very, very much of a of a uh elite an elite secret group but tried as hard as they could to be friendly with everybody and to to uh, get along with everybody. They really did. Now, that sounds rather Masonic. Now, they built or they helped to build the pyramids, Solomon, Solomon's Temple, and the Manilan Labyrinth, our Palace of Knossos. There, yeah. Before, before the Phoenicians uh, arrived to help them, help the Minoans, they, they didn't have any palaces. What? Oh, boy, look what they ended up with. Now, um, Phoenician Temple of Melkart. And here is where we really start getting getting into this esoteric and occult aspect. The Phoenician Temple of Melkart, entire, and I need to explain that Melkart means the god of the town, god of the city. But they equated Melkart with the Greek Heracles, or the Roman Hercules, and Melkart was sort of like uh, like uh, Balsamin, the uh, the solar aspect, the solar aspect of Baal. Now that we we have to make sure you understand, Baal just means Lord. It just means Lord. So the, so there's there's all kinds of different Baals. Uh, and you know, Balsamin, God of the Heavens. There's uh, Balada, God of Thunder, 
and then there's uh, Balls of Fun, God of the Mountain, and on and on and on. So, but but uh, Melkart was the original Hercules. Now, the original Hercules, remember now about the 12 labors of Hercules? Well, for heaven's sake, don't look into Greek mythology and think you're going to be able to solve the the uh, zodiacal initiate, uh, initiatory code by looking at the labor of, labors of Hercules in Greek mythology because they've really been mixed up and, and just really, really been out of shape uh, in retelling and retelling and retelling. But they originally came from the temple of Melkart in, in Tyre. And, uh, you know, now in front of this uh, temple were two pillars standing on the porch. They can be seen from seaward. And these pillars, according to Herodotus, uh, Herodotus, excuse me, uh, Herodotus, yeah. uh, these pillars, gold, and the other was emerald. And Herodotus said that you could see the emerald when shining, you know, and, 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 uh, and the gold. Now, the gold pillar, obviously, well, this begins to sound like Yaqid and Boz in, in, in the Solomon's Temple. And sure, obviously, Hiram of Tyre, you know, sent Hiram of Biff, another Phoenician, down there to help Solomon build the temple. And then he built these, he cast these two brazen pillars. And, and uh, you know, you, what was he using for a model? Obviously, the, t- t- the pillars in the, in the Temple of Melkart. Uh, but the gold pillar represents the sun, and the green pillar represents, what do you think? The planet Venus, the goddess, and then inside, and we probably have a big silver mirror or something like that. And uh, so we have, uh, but we have, a, in a sense, a we have, in a sense, a Phoenician kind of tetragrammaton where you have uh, where you have uh, the god and the goddess. That's that's. Hell and Asher out of the sea, and then you have uh, Baal and Astarte, oh, and or Baal and Tanit. Now, um, so the gold, the gold pillar is its sun, the emerald is Venus, and they worshipped the great father god Hell, and that's the left lament, by the way, and his holy lady Asherah of the sea. Now, Hell was the god. Of well, he's all through the Bible, you know. God is referred to as El, as, and uh, but El was the was the the older God for all of the so-called ten lost tribes, the ten northern tribes of Israel. El was was uh, so it, it's very uh, it's very possible. Although Holst uh, Holst doesn't back this up, but but Holst is. is I tried to stay pretty close to the Bible, and I don't blame him, but but uh, that temple was probably built for hell. Uh, and uh, the, so the Canaanites, the Canaanite tribes, the northern tribes, were, were uh, all worshippers of, of hell rather than YSVH. And this means that Hiram Abiff was not just, he wasn't half Jewish and half Phoenician, he was all Phoenician, but uh, 
Oh, so well, that's my opinion anyway. I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put that in Holt's mouth, and I'm not gonna put it in Herman's mouth. Now, let's go a little further. Enoch was a Phoenician prophet. Now, Enoch was a Phoenician prophet, and oh boy, the masonry makes use of Enoch. So um, we're uh, we're moving right along. That Enoch was a Phoenician prophet, and Mount Hermon where those uh, fallen angels descended. You remember that flying saucer that comes down on top of Mount Shasta, and the next thing you know, you got uh, you got this three-eyed fellow with horns, and he's talking to you. Yeah, that's the fallen angels on top of Mount Hermon, which happens to be very much in the in the upper area of Lebanon. It wasn't in Israel at all. So Enoch was a was a Phoenician Canaanite prophet. Pretty good good sense when you think about it. Now um, I'm going to talk about about the Atlantis connection here. Now let me say this. Remember when I said in the beginning of the show, I said, well, um, neither Holst nor Herm would would use the A word. And the A word, by the way, is uh, is um, well, it gets you kicked out of an anthropology seminar if you use it. A word, of course, is Atlantis. And the the evidence has been building up and building up and building up and building up toward Atlantis uh, to the point now where the, the archaeologists and the anthropologists, and as I say, so many of them are Marxists. And, uh, you know, they're not, I don't mean they're subversive Marxists. I mean they're, they have Marxist philosophy. Everything has to evolve from the simple to the complex. We don't have cyclic stuff here. You know. says that's against dogma and Marxism. So the A word sets their teeth on edge. They don't want to hear it. But, uh, if, quite frankly, uh, what we are now know about the Phoenicians they're definitely, I think, I think personally, there's definitely a connection. And uh, the Cyclopean or Cyclopean architecture at, uh, in the Hypogeum in Malta and, 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 and all over the Mediterranean, actually, and some of the Mycenaean, some of the Mycenaean uh, work is, is, uh, seems to certainly predate the Mycenaeans. Um, now, another one that we'll mention here along the line with this Atlantis uh, idea is a mysterious city sunk beneath the sands out by the the shore in western Spain and that is a legendary city called Tartessos. Now Tartessos nobody knows whether it was Phoenician or what it was but it's underneath the uh, the sand. It's buried buried under, under 12 feet of silt, and off the the western coast of Spain. And this this city was mentioned in the Bible as Tarshish, Tarshish, very very ancient city. And and but what's even more important than that is that the Phoenicians came back and built the city that is now Cadiz. They built that right, right next to it. But then further on up, further on up from Tartessos, is another river mouth and another silted over city, which is vastly older than Tartessos and is laid out in the pattern of Poseidonis and Atlantis. 
Now, also, we might mention that Carthage, and uh, we haven't talked too much about Carthage, but Carthage was that colony of uh, the Phoenicians that Dido uh, established and that fought with the Romans. And uh, they, they wouldn't have fought with the Romans, except the Romans wanted to fight. Uh, and the Romans wanted to dominate trade, and, and uh, Carthage been established for many hundreds of years. And it was uh, it was the trade hub for for the uh, you know, the Western Mediterranean. And the Romans were rising up in power, and, you know, in, in the Roman Republic, and they they decided that they would have to destroy destroy uh, Carthage, destroy this trading monopoly. Uh, and, and you know, Cicero used to get up in the Senate, and he would he would shout to the top of his lungs, Carthage must be destroyed. And so, of course, they did. They, they destroyed it. But interestingly enough, Carthage, the harbor in Carthage is also laid out like, like the harbor of Poseidonis in Atlantis. Now, um, so Carthage was destroyed, but Interestingly enough, and this is uh, this is really interesting, I think, the man who destroyed Carthage, Scipio Africanus, had a dream. And that dream that he had was about the initiatic code in a temple very much like the Temple of Melkart in, uh, in, in Tyre. Now, a few hundred years before that, Tyre, I mean, 500 B.C., something around there, Tyre, and that temple of Milkard, Alexander the Great came down the coast with his army, and Biblos and Sidon and those Phoenician cities, they said, okay, you know, we're not going to fight you, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll capitulate and all that. And, and I was fine with Alexander, uh, but he got to Tyre, and, the, and, he, and, he, and what he did is he, 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 he camped his army across the strait from Tyre. It's on an island, fortified island. And he sent a message over to the Tyrians, and he said, I understand you have a temple to Hercules, and I want to come and, and make a sacrifice to the, to the god Hercules in your temple. Well, the Tyrians' priests and the king and the, and the priests, they sent a message back, and they said, we would we will not permit that, but what we will do is come ashore and build an altar to Mel, to Melkart, and you can make your sacrifice there. Well, Alexander, Alexander had quite an ego, and not only did he have quite an ego, he he also uh, was 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 trying for egotistical reasons and also for for political reasons to make himself the god. You know, to make himself God on earth. And and so he had his army roll up their sleeves or whatever and build a causeway all the way out to Tyre, across this across this isthmus, across this, this passage. This big causeway. And then he attacked the city. Now it took him pretty much six almost nine months to build it. And had to stop his conquest of Egypt and everything else to do this, but he went all the way across that and, and, and took this city, and and then proceeded to sell thirty thousand men, seventy thousand women and children into slavery, and crucified five thousand uh, Phoenician 
priests and nobles and and and, and, and leaders of the time crucified him. Why? Now, Gerald Herm can't figure that out. And and uh, why why would he do that? Well, Alexander wanted to literally wanted to take on the mantle of Mithra, and or, or at least in, and then whatever he was he was going to be the killer of the bull, and he was going to bring in the age of Ares in, in his own way, and as you know, of course he he um, Ptolemy ordered the zodiac according to, according to Alexander, so Alexander proceeded to just uh, you know he proceeded. To to do this as a huge gesture, you know, stern and, and harsh as it was, to establish establish his his uh, godhead in the age of Aries, kill the bull, uh, the uh, and and um, this is pulls on astrology, by the way. The initiatic code was originally uh, started without Aldebaran. Yeah, so he did this, and 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 um, yet in Carthage, I still had it. I still, I still had this this this, this initiatic code. So Scipio did the same darn thing. He he wiped Carthage. He just virtually wiped it off the face of the earth. And then and then he has this dream. So he recovers the initiatic code in a dream. Scipio's Scipio's dream. Now, Westcott wanted to use this in the Golden Dawn, uh, in the Inner Order, but Mathers had the Enochian bit in his teeth and ran with it. So Westcott had to, had to just settle for putting it, Scipio's dream, in the Collectania Hermetica. So if you want to look at it, you, you can look at it there. Um, now, let's talk about a little bit about the alphabet, because the alphabet is uh, really, the alphabet is one of the one of the big things. Now, as you know, um, the Phoenicians invented the alphabet, or at least they, they, that's as much as we know as they did. Now, they, we, we think they invented it around 1500 B.C., but probably, I think they probably had it a lot longer than that. They, because being the way they were, they probably used it themselves. And, and they wrote everything down. They didn't, they, there were some clay tablets, in fact, some clay tablets where the Phoenician alphabet had been discovered in southern France. The French Academy didn't like them too much, but but at least uh, nobody ever really discredited them. But that was on clay tablets. But the Phoenicians did most of their, almost all of their writing was done on papyrus because they had they were the big papyrus distributors for for the you know papyrus only grows in Egypt, so they were but they were the big distributors of papyrus. In fact, Biblos, the, the city Phoenician city of Biblos, was called Biblos. Because that's where the Greeks got their papyrus, and and so they, uh, but papyrus does deteriorate, and and so we don't have, you know, it's like it's like bronze. You say, well, the Bronze Age began began at such and such a time. Well, yeah, except that that's that's before that bronze deteriorates, so we don't know how long ago the Bronze Age. So consequently. Uh, uh, the, we really don't know with the, with, the, with the Phoenician alphabet. We don't know how old it is. Uh, we, we can't say it's 1500 years. Of course, we say if Moses if Moses actually did the Ten Commandments, they would have been in Phoenician. Uh, and and uh, this alphabet, though, and this is this is really really interesting. This alphabet only has 22 letters. Now, to get around 
the zodiac can need 24 letters. When the Greeks got the alphabet from the Phoenicians, they added a couple of vowels and ended up with 24 letters, which got them around the zodiac just fine. And then, so you could say that in this sense, the Greeks invented the Kabbalah. But I'm not so sure about that because what if the Phoenicians had their own astrological alphabet that had 24 letters? Yes, that's the reason they probably did. And, uh, and of course, naturally, we've tried to reconstruct that. So, uh, but that, that would be based definitely on bullseye astrology, where the Greeks, by the time they got going, they based theirs on Aries, on, on uh, zero degrees Aries. Now, um, so, as I said, the code is revised, basically, in accord with, uh, with the precession. Now, when Jesus comes along, he, he ushers in um, the, uh, the age of Pisces. Now, you may ask why the Phoenicians, uh, why we're crediting them. We, 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 you know, we like to think that astrology all began over there in, the, in, in uh, Babylon and, and in Sumer, well, well Akkad, whatever, in Assyria. Uh, yeah, maybe so, the bullseye astrology, that's very common. But they, remember now, the Phoenicians were sailing by the stars. And so consequently, astronomy and astrology were very, very important to them. And where, where, where do we think Orphic cosmology came from? And so, uh, quite frankly, uh, we have very, very significant occult mysteries connected with the, with the Phoenicians. And I think that gives you a pretty good idea of uh, what these, uh, at least the depth of this, of this subject, I hope. And um, next week, next week we're going to try to see if we can't get a guest to, uh, an authoritative guest to come on and, and give us uh, some more information about this. So, until next week, good magic. Judy was boring. Hello. Then, Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.